All right, if you would this morning, let's turn to the book of the Revelation, and we're going to be this morning, we're in chapter 10, Revelation chapter 10, and as you're finding your places there, let me show you where we are chronologically on the timeline. So as we come to Revelation chapter 10, this is another parenthetical section in the book of the Revelation. So we have throughout the book of Revelation, when we get over into the tribulation period, that seven-year tribulation period, there's going to be several parenthetical sections. We could call those uh, interludes or intermissions or a parentheses when all these things are happening in sequence one after the other that the Lord's going to kind of slow it down just a little bit. As one commentator put it, these are divine popcorn breaks. You just go to a lengthy movie or film and they have an intermission. They're giving you a little break. And so in these breaks or these parenthetical sections, is the Lord going to allow us to see a little more detail and to slow things down as they're happening in such a rapid sequence? So we come to this other parenthetical section. Now as we open up in chapter 10, where are we? Well, we know the church has already been raptured out according to Revelation chapter number 4. So the church, not the building, but the people that comprise the church, a body of baptized believers, are in heaven, and there are several events going on there. While on the earth, those who are left behind, who do not know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and are left behind, are left to endure a seven-year tribulation period when God will pour out His wrath on an unbelieving world. Remember, the Lord Jesus went to God the Father. He got that scroll, that parchment that's been rolled up, and he peels the seals away, which we have seven sequential seals. And then what is released, as we've been talking about, the seven trumpets to be followed by seven vile or bold judgments. But where this brings us to at this point, once we've had the seals... And with the seventh seal is the release of the first trumpet. That right here in this per, uh, parenthetical section, we are between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, which brings us into a seven-year period, if we just divide that in half, and the Bible does divide that in half, in three-and-a-half-year sections. The first part being when the Antichrist, the rider of the white horse with the first seal, is released the first judgment. He's going to make a pact with Israel. He is going to be a political genius. He is going, people are going to swoon over him. He'll make an agreement, a treaty with Israel during that time. And there will be the judgments of God, but politically the Antichrist will be in charge. At the end of the three and a half years will be the abomination of desolation, will be the midpoint of the tribulation period. That's where we're going to be this morning, right there at the middle of the tribulation period. When we get over to the last three and a half years of seven years is known as the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation. When the tribulation intensifies, we have the Antichrist. He's revealed himself. He's desolated the temple, and he, he's came out as who he is and broke that treaty with Israel, and he will start to persecute the Jews and as, as that is happening, 
God is raining down a judgment upon the earth of the, the likes this world has never seen nor will seen afterwards. So we're right there halfway in. This is parenthetical between the sixth and seventh judgment. The seventh or trumpet. The seventh trumpet judgment will not be sounded until Revelation chapter 11 verses 15 through 19. And so before then will be the events that needs to transpire in this parenthetical section, chapter 10 and then chapter 11, the majority part of that chapter, will deal with three important things. Number one, today we're talking about the mighty angel that comes down from heaven. This will happen first. John's consumption of the little book that is in the hand of the angel, the mighty angel that comes down from heaven. And then we go over into chapter 11, we have the two unidentified witnesses that will God will empower for that time of the tribulation to be a witness in Revelation chapter number 11. So let's get right into it. In verse number 1, John says, And I saw another, you ought to circle that, mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was upon his head and his face was you ought to circle this as it were as it were the sun doesn't mean it was the sun it was as it were the sun and his feet as pillars of fire and he had in his hand a little book open and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. And so with that being said this morning, I'd like to preach to you on the subject, the mighty angel with the little book. The mighty angel with the little book. In fact, another appropriate title of this sermon this morning would be when God puts his foot down on sin. <laughs> Finally, God, it, it, he will say, that is enough. And this mighty angel will declare at this time with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea that time shall be no more and that there will be no longer a delay or opportunity or time as God's judgment will fall without looking for any more repentance. They've been given chances back here through the, the judgments. Those judgments are given that men, unbelieving men during the tribulation period may trust in Jesus Christ and be saved during that time. But the angel will declare that the time is over, shall be no more. And the rest of the judgments to follow, the bold judgments, will come severely uh, through the vile judgments. So let's look at the first thing. The first thing I want you to notice is the angel. The Bible says, another mighty angel. Now, who is this mighty angel? Well, Bible commentators are, and scholars are divided on the identity of the angel. Uh, the identity has to be, in my study up to this point, the most divisive. I don't mean that there is a war between the Bible teachers and commentators, but they're kind of split down the middle on who is the mighty angel. Good men, good Bible teachers, good Bible commentators are divided among the Bible teachers to date, up to date in our study on the identity of the mighty angel. For example, out of the vast resources in my library, uh, the 13, the, excuse me, not the 13, but the writers are divided right down the middle. Now I look at about, James seen them last night, 9 to 13 commentaries as well as other lessons 
that I review for hours before I present sermons to you on the book of the Revelation. Not reading the entire book, but the whole section out of those would be Warren Wiersbe, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, Tim LaHaye, John Phillips, uh, Dr. Harold Wimington, as well as many others, Wolverd, which is the premier study, academic study on the book of the Revelation, as well as many others. So out of, out of 13, I stacked up and went through, five of them hold this school of thought or this position and have valid arguments on each side. And then at the end, I'll tell you what I think, all right? For example, out of the 13 writers, five hold the position that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. So good men, good Bible teachers, Dr. Adrian Rogers and others, say this is Jesus Christ, okay? That he is coming down. He is the mighty angel. So five hold the position out of my library that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Six hold the position that this is a distinct, set-apart, mighty, specific angel that's been given this job. Uh, two out of those that also are a part of the library kind of give both schools a thought without coming to a definite uh, conclusion or giving you their position, uh, specific position on that. So we got to figure out who is the angel. Well, there's a couple things you need to notice about the angel in learning about this. Number one, the Bible says he came down from heaven. We're in the, we're in the heavenly scene, and now in chapter 10 we're going to bring it down to the earth. This angel comes down from heaven, and he's clothed with a cloud. Now, clouds in the Bible take our minds back to is the Israelites and back into when they left Egypt and they were in the wilderness wanderings. Remember, they had a, a cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. The cloud filled the tabernacle. It filled the temple in Solomon's day, the smoke, the cloud, representing the Shekinah glory that comes down from God, God's presence, God's great glory. And so that's where some are going to say or hold the position that this cloud represents deity. It represents the Shekinah glory of God. So Israel familiar with the clouds. Number three, there was a rainbow upon his head. Of course, we know the bow takes our minds back to God not forgetting his promise when it comes to, to Noah, when he flooded the earth, the great flood, the great deluge, the worldwide flood at that time that spanned the earth, that killed all the men in it except for eight souls were saved as by water. So we know that we see God's promise, the rainbow upon his head, the second mention of the rainbow in the word of God, or in the book, I should not in the word of God, but in the book of the Revelation. So we see the promise of God. The next, the fourth thing is his face was as it were, as John is describing it, as it were the sun, okay? Now, several of these, that these two descriptions, his face was as it were the sun, and then his feet as pillars of fire, would take the good Bible student that studied the Word of God and studied the book of the Revelation back to Revelation chapter 1. It seems to be a similar description between the when John was on the Isle of Patmos and the Lord Jesus visited him in his resurrected uh, state, his glorified state in chapter 1. Those are similar, similar uh, similarities between uh, Christ and Revelation chapter 1. Well... So you say, Pastor Toller, do you see it being Jesus Christ? There are valid arguments about that. Is the description, okay, the fact that he, this angel has authority, okay, 
there, there are valid, very valid arguments about that. On the other side, we do have a couple of things that we have to answer as far as when we talk about the second advent of Christ, when he comes back, when we come back with him and he touches the earth the second time, which will be on the Mount of Olives. So we got a little uh, issue there about, you know, if Christ is touching the earth now, what about the Mount of Olives? When I read this, and I think when we, we look at the Bible, when we study the Bible, we ought to take it at face value. If it makes sense, seek no other sense, lest it become nonsense. And so when I read this, I took it personally as it just being a distinct, mighty angel specified for this event. Now you say, Pastor, I see it as being the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we don't have to fall out about that, do we? This is not something that is divided. Uh, it is not something that you break fellowship over or what have you. But I'm going to just take it literally that it's just, the Bible says it's a mighty angel, okay? But if you say you believe it's Christ, either way, you're going to be in good company. The Bible says, let every man be persuaded in his own mind, okay? And there's nothing wrong. See, there's certain things in the Bible we don't understand, and we don't know everything. And I don't claim to know everything. But one day, uh, our, we see through a glass darkly, but one day, face to face. And so there's nothing wrong with studying schools of thought and studying both ends of the spectrum. So those are the two major schools of thought there that you can take and study in your personal study time, right? All right, number two. I want you to notice there is some authority. Look at verse number two. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Notice there is in his hand a little book. Now again, this is going to be another schools of thought that people are differed on when it comes to what is the little book. Well, the Greek word for the little book here is, is distinctive. It's only found this particular Greek word. Now, for example, the Bible, uh, the word, you know, some people say, well, I don't believe the Bible because, or I don't believe the Trinity because the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. We still believe in it because the Bible teaches it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I always come back to them and say, well, the word Bible is not found in the Bible. It comes from the Greek word biblios, which means the book, the book, the book. But the, and you see that in the scriptures, but this specific distinctive word is sort of similar to that, but it's set apart. And so it would mean uh, here it's only found three times, and guess where it's found? Only in Revelation chapter 10 when it says the word book, in chapter 10, three times, is it this set-apart word that is used. Now, here's a couple schools of thought to get your mind marinating this morning and get them wheels a-turning. Uh, schools of thought when it comes to the little book. What is it? What is the little book? Some believe it is the title deed to the earth. The title deed to the earth. Many good men also believe and hold the position that it is the seven-sealed scroll that is found back in chapter number 5. Remember, they looked around, John wept, no one was worthy to open the book, and they believe it's the scroll that had the seven seals that's been completely unraveled, unveiling the plan of God there, and many good people hold that position. There's two other, one other position, I want to make an application. The, they, some hold the position, it is the remaining prophecy of the revelation, okay? the remaining prophecy of the revelation contained within the little book. 
Or we could say it is the book of the Revelation. What's been re revealed to John as his own, the Isle of Patmos, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And the Lord gives him this vision, the revelation, the apocalyptus, where we get the word apocalypse from. And he's getting this. So we'll see that here in a minute where that would seem to be the correct interpretation. The next one, an application that we can make, that we can all apply to our lives, that we can use right now. <laughs> you don't want to get caught up on what it is because the Bible is not distinctive in telling us exactly, specifically what it is. So don't get caught up in that. You can study the different schools of thought, come to your own conclusion. Somebody may see different than you. You don't have to break fellowship. But we can all make this application that it represents the Word of God. The Word of God. Because the angel is going to instruct John to take the little book and to eat it and to consume it and to digest it. And to him, he says, it was both bitter and it was sweet. Now notice here, we'll come back to that here in a minute. I tend to lean towards it being the, or the prophecy or the book of the Revelation, by the way. All right, no, number C would be, the Bible says he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Now this is important. We live, the Bible says when speaking of Satan, it describes him as the God of this age. Remember the Lord Jesus was tempted after his baptism, before he initiates his earthly ministry. In the wilderness, he was tempted and Satan said, if you'll, in essence, he said, if you'll bow down to me, I will give you all of this. Now, you cannot give that which is not yours. Amen. He's the God of this world. He's the God of this age. But all that's going to come to an end. When the angel descends from heaven, whoever the angel may be, whether it be Christ or another distinct angel, the, the conclusion is still the same. His right foot, or his, one of his foot, I should say, uh, his we have right foot upon the sea, his left foot upon the earth, and declare that time shall be no more. The angel's posture is that of conqueror, taking possession of his territory. See, in biblical times, when a conqueror took a land or a piece of property that had a shoreline, he would stand on the shore and place one foot in the water and another foot on the land, and raise his hand in victory as a symbol that he had prevailed. Amen. This refers, as I like what John Phillips said, this will refer to capitalist lands, communist lands, colonial lands. He claims from pole to pole. You remember back in Joshua chapter 1, verse number 3? I know you go through the book of Joshua. Every Place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you as I said unto Moses. You know what God's doing at this point? For 6,000 years of human biblical history, man has said, I want it my way. And God finally says during the tribulation, there it is, have it your way. The light's gone, the salt's gone, the witness is gone, the church is gone. And there's literal hell on earth and anarchy upon the earth during that time. And God's going to let it go on a while. And God's going to let it happen a while. He's going to let all the evil and sin and the judgment run amok. But God's going to put his foot down one day. And he's going to say, that's enough. 
It's done. He's taken official possession. This is the execution of a sentence. God is in essence saying, when he puts his foot down finally, I've had enough. That's it. That is enough. That is enough when it comes to the sin in the world today. That is enough when it comes to the vileness and wickedness and pervertedness of this world. It's enough. And I'm glad one day God is going to put a stop to a lot of things that's going on. We live in a basically godless, vile, perverted society today. And if I were God, I'd already executed judgment upon them that believe on me. But thank God, I'm not God. And neither are you. But there's one thing I'll, I, I can't even comprehend, but I'm glad he is. The Bible says he's long-suffering. He's long-suffering. You say, how can God put up with all the God-haters? How can God put up with all the sin in the world? Because he's long-suffering us. We're not willing that any should perish but that all, all should come to repentance. God was long-suffering to us. But you know, everything must eventually come to an end. It's going to come to an end. Because you know what? The Bible says in Colossians 1, 6, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominion, dominions or principalities or powers, for all things were created by him and for him. God says, I'm taking this thing back. <laughs> it's mine. It was mine to begin with. You made a mess of it, mankind, and I'm taking it back, claiming it for my own. The next one is found in verse number three. It says, the angel, he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered, their voices. Now think about a lion. <laughs> There's a couple times in the Bible, especially in the book of the Revelation, where that will come out and say, whoa, 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 here come all the woes. Now there's going to be more than that. It's a declaration. I'm going to tell you one thing. When uh, I was talking to James last night, now if you talk to me outside of here, you may say, hey, speak up, I can't hardly hear you. They taught us when you get up to preach, get your preaching voice on. Speak up. There's some up in it, some power in it in God's words. There's no power in my words, but there's power in God's word. And there, he's going to have a voice that's going to get everyone's attention. It'll be like the voice, he'll cry with a loud voice as a lion roareth. The lion roars when he is about to make his last leap upon his victim. John Phillips said this, There are a few sounds to compare with the roar of an angry lion. In its unfettered domain, the lion's roar is calculated to chill the stoutest heart, give pause to its most dauntless foe, and petrify its prey. <laughs> That's the voice of a lion. Now, he said here that there were seven thunders that uttered their voices. In verse 4, and when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven. Remember, he's taking, he's jotting down the book of the Revelation. But at this point, see, this is so amazing because he's told here that 
I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Here's a new place we've never been for on up through the whole book of Revelation to chapter 10. What, what is Revelation? It is an unveiling. God is un, he's revealing himself. But this is the first time we come that John hears the seven voices and the seven thunders it utters, and he says, seal that up. I want it sealed. I don't want that, I don't want that shared. That will not be, write them not. Seal them up. A few things in Revelation that are not being shared. Now, it would not even be right to even speculate on what was said uh, in those seven thunders because the Bible simply doesn't say. There's a lot of things we could hypothesize about what they might say, but we don't want to spend our time a lot on what the Bible does not tell us. Now, I think a good thought about those thunders is to say undoubtedly these thunder judgments are so terrible that they spare us their horror. Remember, if those seven thunders uttering the things, maybe perhaps that are futuristic events that happen afterwards, so terrible, so horrible that God spared us the terribleness of them. Okay, Go back to a verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. God is not obligated to tell us everything or explain everything. There's some things we simply don't know. Let's look at the next one. Is the affirmation. Verses 5 and 6. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things therein are and the earth and the things that are therein are and the sea and the things which are therein. That there should be time no longer. This statement here when it says will be no longer comes to the Greek word we get chronos and it gives the idea of there will be no further delay. What this means is basically there will be no further delay. He's not, you know, when he comes down he sets his right foot upon the sea, left foot upon the land and swears that time shall be no more. Of course, we know there's a lot of other things that have to transpire. We're in chapter 10. we got to go to chapter 22. <laughs> so things didn't all end there. What he's saying, there will be no longer, will be no further delay in the execution of God's judgment. There will be no delay or further delay in the execution of God's judgment. There's a couple times we see before in the judgments, we see a reaping of a harvest of those who are saved as a result of the judgments. And what this angel is saying is you're not going to get any more of those. It's, it's it. You know, God has put things to a stop. Put th something, they have to end, all right? Now, also talks about here in verse number 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servant the prophets. So here a mystery, God is going to disclose a truth that is only possible to know in the word of God. This so-called silence of God in the face of prevailing wickedness, the Bible clearly teaches that sin will come to its fullness and that God will permit it no longer. Again, God's putting his foot down when it comes to sin. That's it. It's over. The time is over. We see this really being an answer to the prayers of the martyrs 
that were in chapter 5. You, they Remember, they asked the question, how long will it be before you avenge us? All the God-haters of all, uh, all time, how long, God, will you permit this? And they're praying. And let me say, at this point, God answers their prayer. God answers their prayer and says, all right, that's it. I'll put an end to it. Let's look at the last thing, which is the agency in verses 8 through 11. Now, this is coming to the second part when it says here, And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me and said, Go and take the little book that is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it, eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, and it shall be thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto him, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Let's talk about what that means. Let's use the application. We don't, you know, you say different schools of thought of what the little book represents or what it actually is. But one of the things we can all agree on at the end of the day is it represents the Word of God. It represents God's Word. Now, there's a great practical application in this that's going to seem so simple, but it's so profound in the day in which we live. Folks, we're, some, thing, some things that we're supposed to do about this Word right here. I'm not up here just saying a bunch of words for no reason. All right? We don't just take it and say, well, huh, I heard the Word of God today and do nothing with it. We're not to be hearers only, but we're to be doers of the Word. Not in lip service, but in shoe leather. So we are to appropriate the Word of God. He, John, little John, I should say little John, the little book. John, John is given the instructions. Go to the mighty angel, take the little book, and eat it. Christianity, not complicated, folks. I wonder what he means by that. I have to go study that. You got some Christians that are like it. Say, oh, I wonder what that means. God told me to get saved. What means get saved? It means to be obedient, whether you understand or not. He says, go to the mighty angel, take the little book, and eat it up. And John was obedient to the word. He was to appropriate the word of God. Now, here's where we miss it a lot of times. I've got people that say, hey, let me give you my philosophy on something. And people say, well, read the Word of God. Well, I'm, I'm, I, you should read the Word of God. But I want you to take it a step further. If you was to take it here and show me where it says read the Word of God, I want you to show it to me. But let me take it a step further because it's more to it than that. The Bible, if you look in the book of Psalms, it says meditate upon these things. See law. Read that again. Meditate upon it. You read things all the time. You can read the Word of God until you're blue in the face, and I can read it to you. But until you assimilate it and make it a part of your daily life, you haven't digested it. You haven't taken it in. The Bible says we ought to desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. There's the milk of the Word. There's the meat of the Word. Even the Lord Jesus said, Matthew 4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, every, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Job said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. 
We can prepare a meal, set out a banquet and a smorgasbord in front of you, and you can walk by it like a doctor does a dead man and look at all the smooth food, smell the food, but until you consume it and digest it and eat it, you're not going to receive any nourishment from it. And that's what people do today. They say, well, that's a pretty good idea. That's a pretty good sermon. That's a pretty good lesson. And they walk by it and they'll say, well, that's a pretty good feast you put out, but I'm not going to stay and eat. Hello, how am I doing? I'm in overtime, but okay. I think I get paid a little extra to do that. No, actually, they take some away. No. So when we assimilate the word, it will be both bitter and sweet. There's one thing about this word right here. You're not going to like everything you read in here because the Bible's like a mirror. And when you look in a mirror, sometimes I look in the mirror and I think, man, gracious, I don't like what I see because the mirror is brutally honest. We used to take pictures in the pictorial director and people used to complain. I'm going to tell you, it had, it's going to take a whole lot for me to go through that again. People come to me and say, preacher, I don't like my picture. They took in the director. I didn't say this, but I want to say, I'm sorry, but that's what you look like. <laughs> I know they have Photoshop, but I'm sorry. You may not like it, but that's what you look like. And when you look at the Word of God, you say, I don't like it, but guess what? That's what you look like. And some of it's bitter and some of it's sweet. You say, well, sometimes the message might be negative, sometimes positive, sometimes sweet, sometimes bitter. But we're to give the whole counsel of God, not just what we want to hear, not heaping up to ourselves teachers having itching ears. That's what people want today. Hey, make me feel good. Make me, make, tell me how good I am. Well, I can do that sometimes, but sometimes i got to say, hey, you're a sinner. You need to get right. You need to hit the altar. You need to make a change in your life. You say, I don't like it. Don't make a difference to me. But guess what? There's on one side salvation, but I'm going to tell you on the other side there's judgment. On one side there's heaven, and on the other side there's hell. There is no in-between. So there's the bitter and the sweet, and we accept it all together. Would you stand with me this morning at time of invitation? I appreciate you listening. There's so much here in chapter 10. If we was to go through an in-depth study of this and hit every single solitary detail in it, I could teach on it for two days, I believe. I mean, there's just so much in this chapter, so much to explain. But, folks, God is long-suffering. If we learn anything from this, the invitation is this. God is long-suffering. We lose our patience with people sometimes. We think, why do they keep doing that? We lose patience with the world. We lose patience with our spouse. We lose patience with our families. We lose patience with those uh, that just don't seem to be unconcerned about the things of God. But listen, God's long-suffering. Not one of the should perish, but all should come to repentance. But I'm going to tell you, I have to tell you to be an honest preacher by the Word of God that God's long-suffering with you up to a point. But there'll be a time that God says, all right, that's enough. That's quite enough. Remember when you was growing up, maybe your teacher, your uh, parents, your grandparents, you'd act up, show yourself, and they let you get a little rowdy, but eventually they say, all right, that's enough. That's quite enough. We're going to stop that right now, and God's going to do that. God will do it in your life. Are you ready?